miles over and three miles down. A history of mining, miners and their families in Castlecomer, County Kilkenny. Hello and you're welcome to Three Miles Over and Three Miles Down, which tells the rich history and heritage of the Castlecomer mines. In this series, we'll hear the history of the mines and mining in the Castlecomer area of Kilkenny from prehistory to 1969, when the mines closed, ending centuries of iron and coal mining in the area. In this programme, we look at the history of industrial relations in the mines during the 20th century, about some of the strikes that took place and the role of Nicholas Nixie Boren, the principal union organiser. We hear about the clashes in the 1930s between the miners and the Catholic Church. We hear about the accidents and industrial diseases that the miners suffered, especially pneumoconiosis. And we hear about the miners' campaign for compensation. Two men loom large in the history of the mines in the 20th century. We'll hear about mine owner Richard Pry Wandersford a little later in the programme. But first, Maura Downey gives a historical perspective on his long-time opposite number. The second man was Nicholas Bourne, popularly known as Nixie, an IRA veteran, a miner and a trade union activist who emerged as leader of the coal miners in the early 1930s and nurtured the early seeds of socialism which had already germinated among the miners. They were affected by national and international affairs, such as the Russian Revolution of 1917, the establishment of the Free State, and they were filled with hope of the dawning of a new age when the workers would partake of a greater share of the fruits of their labours. Bourne's family background gave him an insight into both small farming and mining society and a wider political constituency. His father, George, farmed a small holding of 14 acres in Massford in Monroe, the site of the Jarrow coal seam, and he supplemented his income through carting coal, a common practice among small farmers on the estate. At 14 years of age, Nixie was working as a trammer's assistant at Modger Bay Colliery for four shillings a day, walking the five miles from his home twice daily. From 1919 to 1921, he was tending water pumps at Glenmullen, where he earned four shillings and threepence for a 10-hour day. I spoke with Nixie's daughter, Anne, and she spoke to me about her father and his role in the history of the Castlecomer Mines. She first explained to me about how he came to the position of union organiser. He was involved in the Civil War and he was on the run for quite a while because he had um, a death sentence from the Civil War. Um, so uh, he was a wanted man, as it were. Um, wanted, so, wanted by the Free State? Yes. Right. He, he was wanted by the, because he had escaped from prison um, and he had already had a death sentence. He had, he'd been court-martialed and um, so he really needed to get out and they did escape. They had a, a very interesting escape and he was protected around the neighbourhood in Castlecomer and then he travelled a lot because he was in the he was in the sort of he was in the IRA he was on the Republican side of in the Civil War um, he came into contact with a lot of left wing thinkers in the left wing parts of the IRA, leaning part of the IRA, let's say, people who are very influenced by Connolly's thinking um, and who kind of wanted uh, a free state. They wanted a state, a free country, 
but not only free politically, they wanted also social freedoms. And they were afraid of uh, the, well, they didn't want the free state style uh, New Ireland, as it were. Having shown his courage, intelligence, determination and leadership qualities during the Civil War, he took on the minor struggle to improve their working and living conditions. Political independence did not seem to bring the prosperity which workers had hoped for, and like many of his supporters of the Republican cause, Bourne was marginalised politically in the 1920s. His understanding of Republican socialism developed mainly from his reading of James Connolly, and he was attracted to communism. Um, so he was uh, very influenced by that group. So when he came back to the mines, he did have a short period of time working underground, but he also had been influenced to organise. He was very keen. He got socially aware to organise a trade union. He was very horrified by the conditions he encountered and started to um, militate, I guess. And... Uh, he called a strike and they uh, sack, they sacked him and people came up in Skahana mine in solidarity and wouldn't go back to work until they reinstated him. So they reinstated him and that was kind of the first little success that they had as so uh, a band of, of people who were... Um, beginning to think about changing mining conditions in a very serious way and thinking about founding a trade union. In 1930, a branch of the Revolutionary Workers Group was formed in the colliery, led by Bourne, Paddy O'Carroll and the brothers Tom and Tom Welch. They were invited to send a delegate to the Congress of the Fifth Red International Labour Unions held in Moscow in August 1930, where the policy of establishing Parallel, parallel red trade unions by splitting the reformist unions and that was forced, forcefully stressed. Bourne was selected to attend and when he was refused a visa by the Free State Government he was smuggled out of the country on a ship with a cargo of cement. He stayed in Russia for three months during which he travelled extensively up to the great mineral centre of the Urals to Samara, where he collected collective state and com- where he visited collective state and commune farms, and then down to the coal mining area in the Donetsk Basin. On his return to Castlecomer at the end of November, he was taken for questioning to the Garda barracks at Massford. He refused to answer any question, and all his belongings and his passport were scrutinised. His supporters had gathered to welcome him home, and when he emerged from the barracks, they cheered and then walked him home. Then they started to say what the problems in the mines were, to flag up. And the Revolutionary Workers Group at the time, they were like the building blocks of maybe what they hoped would eventually become a communist party. And um, they had a, a newspaper called the Workers' Voice. So they would flag up all the, the complaints of the miners um, every week there would be something about the miners organised they would say uh, my father couldn't get a job in the mines when he came back so the, the miners elected him check weighman which was he was employed by them to check the weight 
So this was his second job. It wasn't underground. It was weighing, checking the coal weights against the mine owner's coal, coal weight wear, you know, to make sure that they weren't being fiddled in any way. Um, so that was the job and ideal for him organising, helping to organise the union. Union activity at that time brought with it an inevitable clash with the church authorities. Nixie Boren and the miners came across a considerable resistance to what they were doing, as Anne explained to me. They were so seriously worried that they, the bishop then was called out and he came to Monin Row and he denounced... Uh, well, he had, he had a three-pronged sort of denouncement and the one was to do with uh, Revolutionary Workers Group, the others to do with the... the um, Workers' voice, and the third, of course, had to do with the Mine and Quarry Workers' Union, and those three things were were the works of the devil. So he called on everybody to to denounce on the congregation to renew their baptismal promises and denounce Satan and all his works. And of course, the miners were sitting in the church. Now, they had tried, a group had tried to prevent them from going into the church. And um, some of the miners just lined up behind. There were big farmers and very anti union mainly from a different political persuasion, usually. It would have been a strong motivation. Lined up both sides of the church door to stop them going in, the group of miners. And... Uh, so a group of miners got behind, just stood behind them quietly. One of them was supposed to have been armed, you know, and and the miners can name him. <laughs> that was, a, and just said, anyone that that um, touches Boren, I'll drop him. I think was the <laughs> the threat. So they let them go in, but when the bishop asked them then to. Uh, to uh, to renew their baptismal promises, they they got up and they they walked out of the church. It was telling them that all they were standing for was rubbish and a work of the devil, you know, which was terribly divisive then in the families. Um, so they faced a lot of pressure f- from within their own families, from within the community. Um, and then a march was organised through the mining district, um, denouncing them again. And um, and then in January, which was always a typical response of the church to something they didn't like politically, was a pastoral letter. So the pastoral letter came out in January and it spelled out very clearly for the miners absolutely, that you could not, how deceitful these people who said, well, I am a communist and I am also a Catholic. I go to the sacraments. Uh, I attend mass. Um, you cannot be, he said clearly, a communist and a Catholic. That is pure deceit. Um, and then he said he banned them. They banned the church the workers' voice <laughs> and uh, and the union, 
which was really and and he ended up by saying he was quite nasty about it really he said and what are they doing it for they're doing it for money you know they have all the marks of the beast the agent etc would you be my father they're doing it for money now that was certainly whether he meant they were doing it for Russian money or whether he meant they were doing it for more wages which is quite justifiable um, but to say that and they said um, that they were just Judas's and he didn't end very well so that really was affected uh, that that was the death knell almost of the the union then Union activity in the early part of the 20th century was highly regarded with suspicion by the Catholic Church and the church authorities. Mick Brennan Rowe remembers a time when things were very stark. <coughs> the nuns beyond didn't want to teach us because we were classed as communists. Well, not, you know, our fathers, and because the, there was a trade union and poor Mr. Wanister the man that owned it was going to be killed and everything with the communists and all this, you know what I mean? It was ignorance, really. That was going to be... And then they started the union out in it in the late 30s, early 40s. The union, Nixie Bourne, started and he went to Russia to learn about things. He was a great man. Way before his time, you know. Way before his time, I was uh, went to join the union in nineteen July nineteen fifty two. I'd say I'm about the oldest union member. I'm still a member, a retired member. But uh, the in and he put on here signed that. When he was getting me to join the FCA. And I was, I was 16, I'd say, no, 15, 16. You'll get a holiday, he says. And the first time I seen the sea was that time. Went on to Gormston. You know, he looked after you and be, a lot of people didn't like him. Of course, a lot of people didn't like the Valera at all, but he became president of Ireland. You know what I mean? May Dormer has written about Nixie Boren in the past and offered this take on his legacy. Nixie Bourne was totally misunderstood and I think it was because he was visionary and nobody understood it they couldn't get their head around it to be up there now I don't know what his family would feel about that or anything like that but I just kind of find it very hard to that it, I suppose the work he done for social justice should be marked properly Seamus Walsh has also written about Nixie Borand and he has his own take on his politics. Look, Nixie Borand was the only one, we say, around with, with, a, with a motor car. He got that through the union and he'd be going up to what he got at union headquarters in Dublin there. And there was a, there was a, surely a dozen miners above in Piedmont Hospital with TB. And he called to the house. I seen at home with my mother had, had two, two brothers up there at the same time. And he called for her every Monday. And he'd be going to Dublin and bring her up and chop her a Piedmont and bring her and, and maybe give her her dinner on the way home. That's the kind Bourne was. So if he was a communist, why isn't everyone else a communist? You know. A union cannot depend on just one person, of course. Theresa Brennan spoke to me about her father, Tom, known as the chairman, about his union involvement. He was a great 
I would say, how would I say, a very staunch union man. And he went to, he was one of the delegates that went to the Dáil in the 60s with Nixie Bourne and them. They were trying to nationalise the the Irish coal at the time. And it didn't happen because they met with Jack Lynch, he was the minister at the time, and it didn't materialise because oil was found in Britain and uh, it became more viable for than the coal, so it didn't happen. And my father used to always say that if they had to nationalise the Irish coal industry, it would still be going today, like, you know, but that was the way it was. They were fighting for, for um, things for the miners, you know, rations, coal rations, um, more pay, you know, all this. And by the time, like, before the mines closed, like, they had a good... Uh, had a good uh, wage and they had a good, you know, better than most, you know, but it was hard fought for, you know. Mick Brennan Rowe spoke to me about the way the miners contributed to their union, to their facilities and to the church. There was money stopped out of their wages to build the church in Moynero. There was money stopped out of our wages to pay the doctor from in the mines, the nurse, the hospital above, uh, union, uh, the bats, or what you had to pay it so much or not. You know, the stuff is out. That was the first day as well. It's gone for nothing anyway. You couldn't, you couldn't see it. The up there now, the, they're talking about paying for the hospital. We paid for the hospital back in the fifties. You know, and now you won't gain to it. You know, they come from everywhere else. A lot of miners would have ended up there. Oh, I don't. Imagine. Uh, there was a jubilee nurse here then. A nurse, she'd be in attendance in the clinic abroad for cuts and that. And there was the doctor, of course. As we've heard, strikes were commonplace as part of industrial relations disputes over the years in the Deer Park mines. Mick also spoke to me about some of the strikes he experienced in his time in the Deer Park. Striking to be one day strikes and be someone me just part and parcel of it. I mean, I could never understand. You see, the contract men could be cut in their money. And be after working harder, you know. You could be after meeting the flaw and the coal or whatever. And then they're going, or you and the man are going and meet the company and to be settled up. And why they done it in the first place, I don't know. I suppose they were, the managers were just to find their authority, maybe, probably. Seamus Walsh has written a lot about the miners and their union activity. He remembers one strike that lasted 11 months and another that didn't last as long but was underground. One strike lasted 11 months and was regarded as one of the longest strikes ever to take place in the country. We even had the clergy campus and farmers not to give miners jobs trying to force them in back to work in the pit. A lot of men got jobs in other mines like Rossmore and Holly Park. The ESB was not too long going and some of our miners got jobs there. But the lure of the pit was in the blood and with welcome intervention by our local TDs and shopkeepers, the strike ended 
and the men went back to work on St. Palatine's Day, above all days. But there was no love attached, just silence. We had another strike where miners stayed down the mines for seven days and nights. This was a strange sort of strike forced on the men by the government, who ordered that the men should take a big cut in their wages and increase production by 5%. It looked like that the trike in its infancy at the time. But the miners were having none of it, and so the great stay-down strike was, was set in motion. And was well organised, it started in a blaze of glory. The glory didn't last too long, for soon the miners were on their knees, and were glad the strike was called off. A lot of the men were struck down by that dreaded TV after a week-long holiday down in the mines. Teresa Farrell remembers the 11-month strike as well as her father was involved and she remembers the solidarity that was shown by members of other unions, not just in this country but further afield. The Scottish and the Welsh sent money as much as they could at that time and then bakers from Dublin used to come down with bread for to give them, for, you know, for the, the wives. And I, I can actually, I don't, I can't say I remember because I don't know when the 11-month strike was. But I, I do remember my mother talking about it, how they used to go out for to make sure, you know, hand them down because they wouldn't come up. They stayed down there to make sure that they got food and drink and whatever down, you know, for them. And um, what they were looking for at the time was truppings a box extra. For the for their box of coal, and in the ge- end they got it. They did get the the three three months, uh, the trappings. Sorry, and I just want to say it's history now. Their uh, it's history now. Their troubles, but in the end they won. Seamus has written poetry on this and other matters, and here's his take on the eleven month strike. You know the Deer Park miners stay down the mine for seven days striking against the government who had cut their weekly pay. The strike was forced upon the men in a deal so mean and low when miners striking underground were told stay there forevermore. But the miners were the termalot and did not rush to bank. They stayed below down underground in their lonesome dark wet camps. The beds they had were made of straw spread out on timber frames with candles flickering in the dark to warm them of foul air. A week has passed, the strike goes on, and things were looking blue. When one old miner then cried out, it's time for us to go. They climbed the hill in single file, their black faces stake with pain. With strain upon their families, hoping the strike was not in vain. As mentioned previously, Nixie Boren and his union members clashed with the Catholic Church and it left a deep rift for many years. Anne Boren spoke to me about how this resolved itself. An apology was delivered in 2006 by the then Bishop of Ossery, Lawrence Forrester. 2006, I think he came out morning. No, I wasn't there now, so I didn't, um, I didn't know at the time. Um, he, he came out and he apologised for how they had treated the miners and miners' families in Moaning Row and Clock particularly. You know, that would have been the centre of the mining uh, union at the time of uh, the 1930s. Um, And at least, you know, he had the courage to do that, to come out and say, sorry, we treated you really badly. Yeah. And that meant a lot to the miners. They validated because they always said, why did they? Why did they do that to us? What are we doing to them? You know, why? A big question, you know, that they had. 
Um, Bishop Birch did come out to my father's funeral because Father Cairns, who was a lovely priest of uh, the people in Castlecomer, he went into him apparently and he said, go out there and make reparation for for the sins of your ancestors. (laughs) So he did, but he he wouldn't, he didn't make anything like an apology or, you know. Seamus Walsh has written about the closing chapter in the Union Church Rift in his books In the Shadow of the Mines and Coal in the Blood. Here's an extract from the book. On the 75th anniversary of the dedication of the Church of the Sacred Heart in Monning Row on the 20th of November 2005 by the then Bishop of Ossery, Lawrence Forrestal, who came out to say this special Mass for the local community and to heal the wounds of the past and try to put the record straight. My dear people, I'm sure it is fitting that I, the Bishop of Ossery, should be here for today's celebration. Soon after this church was blessed and opened 75 years ago, serious differences arose between the Bishop of the time and some parishioners about the steps they had to take to remedy the awful conditions under which the miners worked. Mining was the main occupation in the area, and it was the miners by and large who had raised funds for the building of the church. The issue became known nationally, and all I wish to say is that without benefit of hindsight, we can now see that we were all children of our, of our own times, and the 1930s was very different times. And people can often act in ways that seem so unjust or unwise to subsequent generations. It is only right that I apologise for any hurt or distress caused to any individuals or family in the local community. The mining community accepted his apology. It was time to bury all sores. But in the 1930s, things were so different. No history of the 20th century in Castle Cormac would be complete without mention of the mine owner Richard Pryor Wandersford. One of Richard's remaining relatives is Geoffrey Pryor Wandersford, who's responsible for the family archives. He spoke to me about his relative and offers a perspective on his role in the mine and the local community throughout most of the 20th century. He came across as a rather severe man because he was actually quite... Um, a shy person Um, and because he had a lot of power and let's face it a lot of wealth from a very early age um, he became rather autocratic uh, and um, very sure uh, that he was right and he was very resistant to strikes um, which were quite frequent and although he respected um, Nixie Boren the the, uh, head of the Mine Workers Union um, they had many a, a battle over strikes and some of them he resisted for for many months, which caused great poverty and anxiety to to the miners. Looking back on it now, uh, many years later, I wonder if I had been in his shoes um, with his wealth and his early access to that position and that wealth, um, whether I would have done any better. 
I really doubt whether I would. I I think he got too much power too too early probably. But he he really he meant well but um he he was um very um dominant and uh, very strict because he was so determined that the mines would be successful, that he would employ large numbers of people, and that Castle Coma as a town would be successful. Now, this didn't always go down well, and I quite understand why, um, but... Uh, one, I think, must be careful uh, not to rush to judgment um, by means of uh, today's standards, in light of today's standards, uh, because life was was harsh at that, that time, uh, particularly in, in his early years. It was harsh for many people, and it's very easy to judge by modern standards um, what uh, an employer should have have done but uh, that is any, at any rate uh, how I feel about him. Maura Downey gives a brief pen picture of the impact of Richard Henry Pryor Wandesford during the 20th century. Captain Henry, Richard Henry Pryor Wandesford died in 1956 so he didn't see the closure of the industry which he had promoted with great skill through the turbulent years of the first half of the 20th century. He was succeeded as managing director of the Colliery Company by his youngest son, Richard Cambridge Pryor-Wanisford, who was credited by a local author with generous ecumenical consideration in disposing of the last Wanisford connections with Castle Gomer. He facilitated the purchase of their homes by the tenants of the colliery company and of the estate. Uh, Castlecomer House, the residence of generations of Wandersfords, was demolished after a fire in 1966. And on the site stands a Georgian-style modern house built of brick manufactured at one of the factories that replaced mines. We've heard in previous programmes about the conditions in the mines in the 20th century and seen from the perspective of the 21st, things seemed very harsh indeed. But men suffered and occasionally died in the mines. Injuries were common. Nellie Holden told me about her father's accident. We were, had, we, we were gone to London for a holiday to my aunt in London and my two sisters and myself. And when we came home, they were waiting for us in the station, in Kilkenny, off the train. Because my uncle was in London and uh, we went over and we were waiting on the train for us to come to take us out to the hospital to see daddy. So when we got out to the county, he was still waiting to go over to the orthopaedic at the time. And they took us in to the room to see him. So his two legs were completely smashed all I ever think about what it reminds me of if we went into a butcher's like we used to go up to Jerry the Wires and you'd see the meat on the slab and that's exactly what my father's two legs were like his his left thigh was gone and his ankle and his other was completely gone but he was lucky he got out Big Mike Kelly pulled him out for the whole cave came in if not we would have been orphans and that's belight to you you know what I mean so 
they told him in the hospital in the orthopedic that he wouldn't walk again. But my father was a persistent man, so he wasn't taking what they said to him. So they put plates and screws and pins in up here and down his ankle, and that's the way he was till the day he died. Do you know what I mean? And it's only lately I dawned on me how young he was, because I thought when this happened, oh, he was an old man. But Daddy was hurted in 68, and Daddy's birthday is in October 1919. So that was the age of him. Mammy was seven years younger than him. Daddy was 48, she was 41. And... um, Daddy got up and went to work again. He went back out on a light job. They gave him a light job on the landing, he said. But then it closed. So that was the end of that. We've heard stories about the dust and it's been written about, but Mick Brennan Road describes the conditions down below and how his own doctor intervened at the right time. Last place we worked before it closed. There was nothing. We were in number seven road. That would be six roads over us. There was one under the other one. But they'd be firing shots every hour. And there'd be constant jelly night smoke coming by and trying to work and cough and everything with me. We have a doctor here, Dr. Prasad, a great doctor. He gave me a tablet. And he says, what's that for? Well, I tell you, he says, that'll strengthen your heart and ease your breathing. And it did. And that's six years ago. So I'm very thankful to him. In the extremely dusty conditions underground, one of the greatest illnesses affecting miners was that of silicosis. Peter Keeley explained to me about its effects. A lot of men wasn't good. No, I, I brought up in Norton, I was one of the fellas that was designated to bring, to go to Port Leash and get the bottles of oxygen for the miners. Stephen Maley and all them, I go in, and I, when they'd see me coming, they'd rise the light up and they'd be in. They'd let the front door open, the back door open, and they were sitting in the middle with a coat across their shoulders and they're panting. My God Almighty, he often said, I'd rather be shot if I got to that. They were looking. One man, Noel each, had it very bad. And I said, how are you, Noel? I tell you the way I am, no, Peter, he said. This is the way I am. If you go have quilt, he said, and double it over and dip it in water, he said, and push it over your mouth and try to breathe through it. That's the way I am now, says he. It's a fight, it's a struggle to get one breath in and it's another fight to get one breath out. It's like trying to suck it, says he, through a wet blanket. It's hell, Peter. Now, now a lot of them in Steve Mel and all them, they were in... They worked in the thirties and forties and there were no fans in the mines. But my God almighty, the stairs of them men and they're panting for each breath. And I seen a trouble how men buried with black hair. But when you small up your grey going here to sides, that was the one in 35, 40 years of age. And they died a bad death, fighting for every breath, praying for death. Literally praying, and they said it to me. I wish to God it was dead, Peter. I can't bear this. And the <sighs> terrible, it's black lung, it's a bad job. But that's the price you pay. I suppose for working in a place where you get big money. 
There was a recognition of conditions in the mines by way of legislation, but little officially would be done for many years. Seamus Walsh explained to me about the physical toll on the miners' health and the start of the campaign for recognition and compensation. When the pit closed, it was slowed down four or five years and you wouldn't believe how many miners died. They died through fresh. They died because they thought people were talking about them, being good for nothing, lazy, so-and-sos. And now we're good, they get a job. They, could, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't be allowed in around a factory or nothing now because the first thing you do is have to go for a, a chest x-ray and the miners' lungs was gone with pneumoconiosis and the gilded night smoke, as I said to you, that lay the last hands on them altogether. So you see a miner walking along and he, he's stopping every 10 or 15 yards trying to catch his breath. You know, the finest of men. When I was doing the research for the first book in the shadow of the mines, I went to all the, the cemeteries around the place. I thought there were lads... 75 that they were out of being in the pit at great ages and I was amazed at what men was dead in their 40s and 50s through, from pneumoconiosis you know it's just shocking ravaged and here we are we say in 1970 from 1970 on and we're looking for compensation for the miners Morris Shortall is a local councillor with strong family connections to the mines he spoke to me about the start of the campaign to seek compensation for the remaining men Seamus was contacted by some of the miners in uh, Ballangarry and Erigna and we had, a, we had a historic meeting in the Heritage Hotel in Port Leash where the miners from Erigna and from Ballangarry and from Castle Comer got together to form the National Coal Miners Union group. And I think from there we went from strength to strength because um, Divided you fall, united you stand. And at last we had one voice for all of, of the miners. And we, I can remember we went up to the doll, and there was a programme on the, um, on the television about some of the miners were being interviewed. And Eamon O'Keeve was the then Minister for Social Protection. And you could hear a pin drop when we went into the chamber. And each of them gave from Marigna and from Ballangarry and from Comer all gave a telling testimony of their time in, in the mines and how it had affected them. One particular poor miner who came from Ballangarry actually had a breeding apparatus tied to him so that he could breed to come into the in meeting. Sadly, he, he since has gone to his eternal reward. We didn't know we were going to be going for an Oireachtas committee. We went in and I remember, you see all the tribunals up on the news. We went in and there was Peter Keeley, Seamus Welch, all their names all around. I looked up around the television and so um, the majority of the TDs didn't know there was a mine in Ireland. So there weren't going to be much help, were they? Uh, you know, all that said, God, I didn't know. It's like Ricky Tomlinson, you know, the English comedian. He's shown that he held up a lump of coal in, in like this to a crowd of kids in the school and he says what's this that's a coal and where is that got uh, in the shed they didn't know that it got in a, in, under the ground Seamus Walsh spoke to me about working with Dr Michael Conway who came on board to help the men in their campaign about 30 about 30 miners didn't get compensation about 35 of them didn't get compensation and I, why I don't know because one lad, he was a cutterman. He was working on the coal face for 30 years. So I went into my friend, Michael Con- Dr. Michael Conway, and I says, Michael, um, do you know of anyone that'd be able to help me out? I says, um, these guys, he, he was mad to help the coal miners because he was there to, to read my book and you know the story of having the shores in the hole in the wall. And I says to him, these men, it's, it's disgrace the way they're being left thrown in the heap. And I says, they really need to go to a 
a specialist and that, that for reference to be 250 and for the, the, the come right in the day I mean another 250 and these guys have no money and um, do you know of anyone that'd be able to help me out so he paused for a long time he said I will and fair juice to him he took them all on he brought them all in got them x-rayed and he got uh, Professor Fitzgerald was the man who had the final say so Dr Conway came on and every one of the miners and they all had to go to Dublin to meet this Professor Fitzgerald because he was the guy appointed by the government uh, in, in, agree- in agreement with the miners so hum and hum anyway the Man, a long story short, the miners got the compensation. No, they didn't get thousands and thousands. A few lads got in the 20,000 and 10,000, 5,000. But as one lad says to me, do you know, he says, it wasn't really fighting for the money I was. We wanted just recognition of where we worked and what we had to do and the way we were blackguarded and wasn't looked after. Dr Michael Conway also spoke to me about his medical experiences with the former miners. But I saw the, saw the, the men that uh, Seamus had found and then I examined them, um, and I, I kind of did a unique sort of examination on them. Generally, what would happen with a patient like that is you'd, you know, you'd listen to their chest with the stethoscope, you know, tap them out and do all the various things. And, and then you'd get an X-ray done, and these days we get a CT scan done, and then you'd generally make a judgment on, you know, how badly afflicted or otherwise the person was. But I have this I have this kind of method of doing what I call a poor man's pulmonary function test, which is where I get the patient to breathe in deeply and then forcibly breathe out as quickly as they can. And that little technique was taught to me by uh, Keith Mary Shaw, who was uh, one of Ireland's top cardiac surgeons back in the 70s. And so I, I used that technique to evaluate how the lungs were. And then I could hear evidence, which otherwise I wouldn't have heard. And then I got them up to be seen by a professor in Vincent's. And I think really based on that little test, that kind of swung it because there wasn't a huge amount of concrete evidence. You know, you'd see some evidence on the CT scans and that, but it, that kind of measure just gives you a picture. It doesn't give you a physiological you know, measure or indication of stiffening and thickening and blockage development of the um, of the bronchi in the lung so uh, one way or other anyway um, I, I sorted, sorted out a good bunch of them and then yeah they got compensated it was great like you know and deserved it so yeah we finish on a positive note the miners received recognition and most received compensation there was a lot of paperwork involved as you'd expect and once again the women were the people who helped things move along Maura Shortall spoke to me about one Castlecomer woman who made a difference yeah, I suppose behind every great man is a good woman. And the person I'm referring to now is Seamus's wife, Chrissy Walsh, who has been a fantastic resource. And she must have the patience of Job. Because to me or you, any of those particular forms, modern day forms now, can be difficult and daunting. But Chrissy must have filled out 20 or 30 forms. There could be 40 pages in each form, and she'd go through each item meticulously to make sure it was 100% right and not only that but when she had the form filled out that was the easy part she obviously she'd posted off to the department and I'd say the newer in the department of social protection by her first name and the reason I say that is she used to ring so often and she'd quote 
the, the PPS number, the date of birth, and the minor's name in question. Of course, they, they were the days before that DPPR, that dreaded DPPR, and she would get all of the information she wanted on, and she would then pass it on. But I think she'd done a powerful lot of work. As you say, the minors at that time, I suppose, the only thing they were, they were used to writing was their own name. Those forms proved very, very difficult. But credit has to be given to Chrissy Walsh for her work, for her painstaking work in filling out their forms, but more importantly, in following through with the department. And credit to her and her husband, Seamus, that everybody who applied for disablement pension were successful 100% at the very end. And that's a fantastic end to a story. Thanks for listening. In the next programme, we'll hear about the last days of the mines and the effect it had on the men and their families. We'll hear about the people who recorded the lives of the miners, the development of new industries, the creation of the Discovery Park and Mining Exhibition and what the future holds for the community of Castlecomer. Three Miles Over and Three Miles Down is a documentary series presented and produced by Martin Bridgman for KCLR with the support of the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with a television licence fee.